Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Hello and welcome to Torts Illustrated, episode 11. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. So if you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from old England to today. And today, we're going to take a move on to the lighter side after our deep dive into the world of horrible cults and the misuse of the law. Of course, that doesn't mean we're not going to talk about misuse of the law because today we're talking about false advertising. I think we all forget how much advertising is around us at all times. I remember pulling away from cable to using internet sources of TV like Netflix and Hulu and thinking that I was done with ads, but now I watch like six to nine of them every time I watch something on Hulu. And despite ad block and subscriptions, they're still all around us, whether it's on the internet, on billboards, or even in elevators. Um, My work building has those little elevator screens that are supposed to entertain you, and my eye is totally drawn to them no matter what. So I tend to take in a fair amount of advertising. If you're even a mildly savvy consumer, of course, it's pretty easy to see why false advertising is a big topic in law and regulations because it seems like every single one of these ads overstates what the product actually does in some way. I've actually had this topic in the back of my head for a while now, and that reason is a case called Overton v. Anheuser-Busch, which is possibly the most absurd false advertising case I've ever heard. So, I'm going to leave it for the end of the episode, and before we get to it, let's talk a little bit about the concept of false advertising and some other cases. In a very general sense, false advertising is advertising a product in a way that purposefully misleads consumers about the product and what it does. Functionally, it can take on a lot of forms. Now, unlike the tort and criminal cases we've talked about so far, false advertising tends to be a largely regulatory area, which means that generally, rather than playing out in traditional courts with individuals involved, the Federal Trade Commission or the FTC, or sometimes the FDA, is tasked with enforcing regulations on advertising for products and for food. So you'll see a variety of punishments for false advertising, from fines to federal agency administrative suits, where the FTC can actually appear as one of the parties. A lot of states have similar laws at the state level, so they don't have to wait for the federal government to step in, especially with locally advertised products and businesses. And there are also a few ways that private individuals can sue for these things, like class action suits. But generally, violations of advertising regulations are something that's enforced by the government. And part of the reason for this, as is astutely pointed out in the Wikipedia article to give credit where it's due, is that the point here isn't really punishment like we've seen in our tort cases, it's specific performance. They want the advertisers to stop doing what they're doing and stop telling people something false. That's pretty much it. So the remedy here might be a fine in some cases, but more likely it's simply that whoever is doing this advertising stops their false advertising and maybe runs some sort of correction. The point is that they don't want consumers to be misled, and that is the real thrust of their punishment here, is stop what you're doing. 
We're not going to fine you. We're not going to make a big deal, but you need to stop. Now, one type of false advertising we've seen a lot of chatter about in the past few years is Photoshopping. Photoshopping a model so they look a certain way in an ad isn't necessarily an illegal thing, even if we generally think it can be misleading and even harmful to people's self-esteem. So adding extra girth, shall we say, to Justin Bieber's tidy whities in a Calvin Klein ad isn't really false advertising, because the product on sale isn't Justin Bieber, it's the underwear. So the product hasn't been misrepresented, although we all might have a different idea of what Justin Bieber is packing. Where it crosses the line is when Photoshop gives a false impression of a product. So in the UK, for example, starting in 2011 and 2012, the government agency which monitors advertising and commercial practices started banning things like makeup ads that use Photoshop to give a false impression of a product. So we've all seen a shampoo ad where the hair is impossibly smooth and shiny, or a mascara ad where the model is clearly wearing false eyelashes. And this is where government watchdogs in the UK started becoming concerned, because these people are genuinely selling their product as achieving a result that they actually achieve through computer or makeup trickery. In the US, we have less regulation of this particular type of false advertising. So here, it's less likely to be addressed by the FTC. Where we actually see our pushback is more in the public opinion, especially through reviews in the internet and even pushback by the models and celebrities in the ads who have spoken out and said, yeah, I was totally wearing false lashes in that mascara commercial. Some of these British cases have also made a big splash in the public eye here in the US. So consumers are already more wary of these products without another suit in the US. Now, anti-aging products are something that we have actually seen a crackdown on in the U.S., though more through class action suits than FDA or FCC fines. Claims about the benefits of these products have to be backed up with some sort of science. You can't just Photoshop the wrinkles off of Diane Keaton and call it a day when your cream actually does nothing for normal women. So we're seeing an increasing number of these class action suits, and it's an interesting development because it's people using class action suits to take down these practices when the FDA and FCC really haven't done so. So sort of taking matters into their own hands where government regulations aren't doing enough to satisfy consumers. Now I want to stop and make a point here. As someone who is you know, 30 years old and desperately using wrinkle cream already to try and stop it from happening, even though I know it's not the case, having a wrinkle cream that does nothing in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is if you put forth some sort of ad that says that you have some sort of scientific proof that your wrinkle cream will actually reduce people's wrinkles. And this is something that we're going to hear a little bit more about with other types of false advertising. But before we get to that, let's talk about one particularly infuriating method of false advertising, which is fillers. In this case, I don't mean the fillers in celebrities' faces, although some people might find those a form of false advertising. I mean the things that mislead you about the size or shape of a product. So the biggest one that comes to mind is a bag of chips that's mostly air. Unfortunately, chip companies are very aware of this, and so they actually put a disclaimer on those bags about being packed by weight and not volume that takes care of that. But there are a lot of products where you open the jar or the bag and you get a lot less than you were expecting to get in that product. Perhaps more concerning are things like supermarkets plumping up older meat with brine or water to make it look plump and fresh. And that's something that the FTC is likely going to be concerned about, 
or probably more likely the FDA since this is food related and really not healthy. We haven't seen a lot of cases about fillers in terms of chip bags, peanut butter jars, things like that that aren't as full as they should be. But perhaps this is the next frontier, is telling people that you can't package something to make it look as if you're getting more product, even if technically the correct amount of product is printed on the outside. Now, perhaps the most harmful form of false advertising that we're going to talk about today is misleading health claims. And one of the biggest offenders here is usually food products. For example, Activia yogurt. Everyone about my age probably remembers the Jamie Lee Curtis Activia commercials, which advertised Activia as a new development in the yogurt world because it had active cultures that were clinically and scientifically proven to help with your digestion and your immune systems. Sorry to break the heart of Activia fans and Jamie Lee Curtis fans alike, but this just isn't really that true. It might help a little bit, but you're not getting that much of a benefit for the probiotics in a sugary yogurt. A large group of very backed up consumers came together to file a class action suit against Dannon, who makes this yogurt for false advertising. And their biggest concern here was that Dannon was using claims like clinically proven to sell this particular yogurt at about a 30% higher price than a regular yogurt, when you weren't really getting any sort of benefits over just a Yoplait or something. And the court agreed with them. You can't claim that something is clinically proven when it's not. Dannon was fined heavily for this, and they were forced to remove the clinically and scientifically proven label from their yogurt. Of course, they were allowed to keep the phrase clinical studies show, which is why we all still think Activia makes us poop better, and you'll still see ads like that all the time. And that's the funny thing about science and what makes it so hard to tell what's true and what's not now that we have access to so much information. Because you can find a study or two that shows almost anything. I mean, this is opening a can of worms here, but this is how we ended up with people thinking that vaccines cause autism, because there was one very badly done study that claimed to show that, and a million studies that don't, but you can still say studies show because there's one of them out there. So it's easy to prevent a false advertising claim with a phrase like studies show or one in four, and you find a way to kind of game your statistics there. The point is that if you have something that's a very kind of general sort of pseudoscientific claim, you can get by with that. But proven, which is what Activia was using, scientifically proven, it sounds similar, but it's totally different because you're making a much stronger claim here. You're saying that there's scientific consensus. So you could probably say, for example, that penicillin is scientifically proven to work. Uh, but Activia yogurt, probably not. Now, obviously, the FCC thought this was bad enough to find Dannon, but in the end, you're not really hurt by eating a bunch of yogurt to no effect. There are some claims in this area of misleading health claims that are really just things that hurt consumers either physically or psychologically. So on the psychological end, there was an app called Lumosity, and it might still be around, and it had a whole bunch of what they called brain training games. And one of the claims that they made was not only that it would make you, you know, smarter, faster, better, stronger, but that using the app would actually prevent you from getting Alzheimer's disease. So this seems like a pie-in-the-sky claim, but I want you to imagine that you are the child of a parent who has Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has, in some studies, been shown to be hereditary, and so 
you're starting to wonder if this is something that is going to come for you as you get older. And you come across this app that claims that it's going to prevent you from getting Alzheimer's. Are you going to give them $150 a year to use their games? You might, because this is a straw that you can grasp at. Problem is, this app didn't really have any science to back up their claims that it would prevent Alzheimer's. So this is a case where we saw the FCC aiming definitely to punish as well as to stop the false advertising, because that is bonkers mean. Don't promise vulnerable people that they won't get Alzheimer's if they use your app. That's a terrible thing to promise and not deliver on. So the company was fined $2 million by the FCC, and they were forced to kind of backtrack on their advertising and put out things saying that those claims were not true. So these all seem like pretty valid complaints, right? The area that we get into, the gray area with false advertising, is how much of this responsibility to judge products and whether their claims are outlandish or whether they're true falls on consumers and how much of it falls onto a company. It seems like a pretty rational decision as consumers to say that companies shouldn't be able to play with our health like this, but we do also have to have some responsibility here. So if I see you know, a claim from an app that says, it will cure my cancer if I look at it for two minutes a day, I've got to be able to have the common sense to stop and say, no, that does not match everything that I've learned about how science work works and how medicine works. This is not something rational. I'm not going to give my money to these people. To a certain extent, we don't want to allow the government to baby us into you know, protecting us from any possible stress or any possible um, scam when we have to be able to recognize these for ourselves. But there's also the flip side that we don't want to allow companies to just broadly lie and then when they get caught for it say, well, the fault lies on the people who believed us. This is essentially a form of you know, victim blaming, to use a hot button phrase. This is saying that you know, it's your fault for getting robbed because you had nice things. And similarly, it's your fault as a consumer for being duped because you believed what the company was telling you. They shouldn't be able to lie directly to you. So the government has backed this up. They said that companies can't market a product as if it will make us smarter or improve our immune systems or make us poop better or make us look less like wrinkled old hags when their products don't actually do that. Yes, we should be smart about you know trying to figure it out for ourselves, but there is a certain point at which the company is just engaging in bad practices and it is in the best interest of the citizens of the country to stop them from doing that. And that is what the FTC's aim is in regulating advertising, is finding that point where they say, enough, you are lying too much to people, you have gone beyond the bounds of reasonable advertising, and you need to stop. All the things we've discussed today are probably pretty far over that line. Of course, not every false advertising case falls into that category. As we have proven time and time again, so many of us are idiots about so many things, even smart people. I like to consider myself a pretty smart person, and I am an idiot about a lot of stuff. I thought the color magenta was pronounced magneta until I was in high school. So we all have our blind spots, and for some people, unfortunately, that blind spot is believing any stupid advertisement that comes their way. Some people will buy a magic bean from a man in a ragged coat and still get really mad when they don't get a beanstalk. They just can't help it. 
And that's totally the case with our last two false advertising scenarios today. The first involves everyone's favorite method of fighting off the natural rhythm of sleep, Red Bull. As you all probably know, their slogan is, say it with me, Red Bull gives you wings. As 99.9% .9 of us understand, this is meant to mean that Red Bull gives you metaphorical wings. It makes you energetic and happy and a little bit twitchy and sad you drank it and worried about its effect in combination with alcohol. But unfortunately, consumer Beganin Carithers is in the 0.1% that did not get that. So he sued the company because after his 10 years as a loyal Red Bull consumer, he had not in fact developed any sort of wings. Or, in perhaps a more rational claim, shown any improved intellectual or physical prowess. Now, I'm no fan of Red Bull. I don't like how they've changed the whole, you know, drink market to taste like melted sweet tarts, but I did really want to see them stomp on this guy for these absurd claims. Unfortunately, Red Bull actually settled with Carizers. Not because they believed his claim had any sort of merit, but as they said in a public statement, they wanted to avoid the cost and distraction of litigation. It sounds really silly, but they're probably right. It would cost them more to fight this than it would just to settle with this guy and let this fade away. They'd become a super well-known thing that is tied to the Red Bull name forever. But you know who didn't care to avoid the cost and distraction of litigation? The pride of St. Louis, Anheuser-Busch. That's right, folks. You stuck it out and you made it to the most ridiculous false advertising claim that inspired this whole episode. This case occurred in 1993, so this is prior to the InBev merger. It's still good old St. Louis Anheuser-Busch. And this is actually a suit under a state law, Michigan's Pricing and Advertising Act. So Richard Overton sued AB under a provision of this act, which limits statements or representations by companies which are untrue, deceptive, or misleading. And the representations he was mad about? Well, he was mad because at the time there were ads on TV that featured Bud Light in sort of fantasy scenarios, tropical settings, beautiful people just drinking Bud Light and having a really great life. And Overton was very distraught because despite drinking his fair share of Bud Light, he was not living a tropical fantasy made up of beautiful women and endless fun. Bud Light did not bring him these things, which is shocking. This apparently caused him great mental injury and physical and financial loss. What the physical and financial loss is here, I'm not sure. Perhaps development of a beer belly and you know, countless rounds of $2 loss on a beer that tastes like water gone bad. So as any rational actor would, the court completely dismissed this, which I'm sure is a real bummer to anybody who is hoping a Bud Light would give them a trip to Fiji and a beautiful woman. But the thing is, there's actually a fair amount of room in the world of advertising for nonsense and insane claims. And this is why Bud Light's advertising held up in court. Advertisers are allowed to do what's called puffing, and that doesn't constitute fraud. Puffing or puffery, which is where it's derived from, is an exaggeration of the product's worth through meaningless superlatives. So I can advertise Bud Light as the greatest beer in the world or the highest quality beer, which we know are both not true, but the point is that it's a general sort of exaggeration that you or I couldn't really prove either way. 
Another example of this I saw today is that Ben and Jerry's is making a new light ice cream, and it's described as their healthy option. It's still 150 calories per serving. God knows how many servings are in a container. And that's 150 calories with no real nutritional value and a ton of sugar and fat. But a term like light or healthy has no scientific or quantitative value. You can't look at a certain number on a page and say, yes, this qualifies as light. So while it might not be functionally true that this is healthy, it's an exaggeration that they can get away with. There's also the factor that this is a comparison that bends facts. This ice cream isn't healthier than, say, kale, but it sure is healthier than regular Ben & Jerry's ice cream. A favorable comparison that ignores alternatives that would make it look less favorable is totally okay. So this is where we get our whole world of advertising that we live in today. We get a lot of claims that are big and broad and probably untrue, but they're vague enough that they're allowed to stand as puffery. So any sort of, you know, I'm thinking of uh, maybe the Budweiser ads with the Clydesdales and the puppies, and they give you this kind of impression that if you drink Budweiser, you're living this wonderful American dream. And that is not the case. I've had a lot of Budweiser in my day, and I can tell you I was never living a dream when I was drinking it. I don't think anybody is. But this sort of advertising that evokes an image without really standing on science or distinct claims is totally fine. So unfortunately, poor Overton has to live in a world where Bud Light can genuinely advertise that their product makes people happy and carefree. What a world. But hey, if we demand absolute truth, sitting through all those ads in our TV programs would sure be boring. And I wouldn't get to pass all those fun billboards that tell me I'm going to hell on the way from Illinois to Tennessee. Actually, scrap that. That might actually be provably true. But I don't know about you, but fun ads that I know are not really something to be believed are luxuries I'm just not willing to give up. Instead, I'm going to rely on some common sense and hope that I don't get drawn in by anything like a tropical fantasy of Bud Light. That's it for this week. Remember to send me your questions for a forthcoming listener episode at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com, or if you know me in person, you can just hunt me down on the street, or send me a text message. I won't give you legal advice, but I will try my best to answer all your weird legal questions you might have. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, and I'm asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. Mm -hmm.